This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for April 24th, 2015. I'm Suzanne Bard, filling in for Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, we have David Grimm up first with some online news stories, and then we hear from Daniel Cleary about the 25th anniversary of the Hubble Space Telescope. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, advancing science, engineering, and innovation throughout the world for the benefit of all people. AAAS, the Science Society. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. I'm Suzanne Bard. Most cephalopods, including the octopuses you might see at your local aquarium, reproduce only once in their life and then die soon after. But the vampire squid, which it turns out does not suck blood, may have a very different strategy. They live in the deep sea, though, so scientists had to study their reproduction indirectly. How did they go about this, Dave? Well, they found a bunch of specimens in a Santa Barbara museum. Turns out this museum has dozens of these squids. They're so hard to find because they live pretty deep in the water in the ocean. They're actually somewhere between 500 to 300 meters below the ocean surface. This is a zone where oxygen is very low and photons are very rare. So pretty hard to study them in the wild. So they looked at these museum specimens and what did they discover? Well, they found that these squid have a very unusual reproductive cycle. Most squid and octopuses only reproduce once in their lifetime, this massive reproductive event and die shortly thereafter. But when the researchers looked closer at this vampire squid, they saw evidence that these squid had various reproductive cycles throughout their lifetimes. They sometimes rested for quite a while between reproductive cycles. Sometimes they would produce eggs and then reabsorb them, potentially because conditions weren't good for making offspring at the time. All right. So how do they think their lifespan compares to, say, the octopuses we're used to seeing in shallower waters, Dave? Well, that's what's interesting. Because these squid reproduce so often, it turns out that they actually seem to live a lot longer. The scientists did some calculations based on how long they thought the squid were resting between reproductive cycles. And based on their calculations, they suspect these squid may live as long as three to eight years, which is really, really long for cephalopods. Normally, we see squid and octopuses living somewhere between six and 18 months. So this is a squid with a slow lifestyle, lots of reproduction and surprisingly long lifespan. 
Well, it's cool that we can learn these things about deep-sea creatures from museum specimens, Dave. For sure. Next, antibiotic-resistant infections are a big problem in hospitals and nursing homes in the West, and they're a growing issue in the developing world as well. But the last place you'd expect to find antibiotic-resistant microbes is in a remote village in the Amazon. What's this all about, Dave? This is about a people known as the Yanomami, and these are hunter-gatherers who have had traditionally very little contact with the outside world. And there was a village that researchers came across in 2008, and scientists were very excited to take a closer look at these people because, as you mentioned, Suzanne, there's this concern about antibiotic resistance, and we know that there's vast differences between what we call the microbiome, the billions of bacteria that live in our bodies and our guts that seem to contribute to things like obesity and disease, between those in our guts and the guts of people that live in far less developed places, and especially places where you have an isolated tribe of hunter-gatherers. So the question was, could we study these people and get a sense of, first of all, how much different their guts are, but how those differences might contribute to disease? Interesting. And so what did they find in the guts of the Yanomami in this village? Well, they did find that the guts had a lot more diversity in bacteria, which is something that's been seen before, that people that tend to have a non-Western lifestyle tend to have much more of a diverse microbiome, which has been linked to less disease. But the really surprising thing was the researchers actually found evidence of antibiotic resistance in some of these bacteria that were living in the hunter-gatherer guts. Now, that's really surprising because we tend to think that things like antibiotic resistance, which is becoming a huge problem for hospitals and treating diseases, is some sort of artifact of Western medicine that because we prescribe so many antibiotics, because we're exposed to so many antibiotics, that a lot of our body bacteria have developed resistance. And now it looks like maybe that's not the case because we're seeing this kind of resistance in a very isolated group of hunter-gatherers who have had no exposure to Western medicine. Any speculation on how this resistance might develop if they haven't been exposed to antibiotics? Well, the thought is that these people are exposed to a lot of potential toxins in their environment. And so as our bacteria may have developed some sort of resistance to the medicines we take, their bacteria may have developed resistance to just some of the brutal toxins these people are exposed to in their environment, but it may have evolved a very similar resistance strategy, which includes antibiotic resistance. Now, you mentioned Western diseases before. Do researchers think there might be a connection between autoimmune disease in relation to gut bacteria, for instance? Yeah, exactly. The researchers did notice that there was a lot less incidence of autoimmune disorders, diseases like diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease. And so in addition to giving us a sense of potentially how antibiotic resistance develops under various circumstances, this study could also give some more evidence in how the bacteria in our bodies plays a role in disease. Fascinating, Dave. Our body's internal circadian rhythms generally follow a 24-hour cycle, and they get synced up to the outside world with cues from light. For instance, at twilight, light decreases, signaling to our brains that night is coming. But a new study suggests that color changes also play an important role in setting or in training our body clocks. How do the researchers go about studying this, Dave? Well, what they did was they actually created these little artificial skies for these mice. In their cages, they created these LED screens, essentially. Some of them had a color component, and some of them didn't have color. They were just sort of bright or dark, and they wanted to see if the color actually made a difference. Hmm, okay. So what do they find? They found that the color actually does make a difference. They found that mice that were exposed to color, specifically a wavelength of blue 
blue light that tends to dominate the skies after dusk, were much better at keeping their body clock in sync. You know, this is this 24-hour circadian rhythm, this cycle that our body keeps to help us figure out when to eat and sleep and things like that. The mice that were exposed to this wavelength of blue light didn't have any problems sort of keeping their body clock set. But those that didn't see the blue light but only saw basically bright and dark, their body clock actually started to go a little off kilter. I'm assuming that they want to look at applications to humans. Does it matter that mice are nocturnal? So presumably their clocks are kind of opposite from ours, but are there potential applications to humans here? That's a great question. I mean, I guess, you know, what the researchers might say is that even though mice are nocturnal, we're diurnal, we both live in a 24-hour world. And so we both still have to be able to sync ourselves up with our environment, regardless of when we're awake or when we're asleep. So, you know, the thought is that this is potentially applicable to humans. One potential application is some people actually treat jet lag, which is thought to somehow mess up the body's clock by using these light boxes. And they can actually look at light and sort of keep their body clock set. And the thought is, well, maybe these light boxes could be better if they incorporated color. So you might see color in light boxes in the future. Interesting. What else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Suzanne, we've got a story about a controversial claim about how to tell the difference between a male and a female dinosaur. Also a story about how an unusual bird runs on water. For Science Insider, a policy blog, we've got a story about the Federal Drug Administration taking a new look at homeopathy drugs. Also a story about why some humpback whales may lose their endangered status. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Suzanne. David Grimm is the editor for our daily online news site. I'm Suzanne Bard. You can check out the latest news in the policy blog Science Insider at news.sciencemag.org. Next, on April 24, 1990, the Space Shuttle Discovery launched the Hubble Space Telescope into low Earth orbit. For 25 years, Hubble has been collecting unprecedented images of our universe. Deputy News Editor Daniel Cleary discusses Hubble's achievements and its future this week in science. The Hubble Space Telescope is a telescope just like any telescope on the ground. It has a large curved mirror which focuses light onto an electronic detector. The mirror is 2.4 meters across, that's nearly 8 feet, which is quite small by professional telescope standards. The biggest telescopes now are around 10 meters across, but it has the advantage of being in space. Its orbit is about 550 kilometers above the Earth, the same sort of altitude as satellites that are moving very fast around the Earth, like a GPS satellite. And its eyesight is a bit better than a human being. It can see all the visible wavelengths that we can see, but it can also see a bit of ultraviolet wavelengths, as well as a little bit of the near-infrared. So it's just a bit better than we can see. And those extra wavelengths are quite important because they're not visible to telescopes on the ground. They're blocked by the atmosphere. So a telescope on the ground can't see in the UV or the infrared, but Hubble can. And being in space, the advantage it gives it is that the light then doesn't have to come through the atmosphere. And the atmosphere scatters a light, so it provides a sort of background haze so that a telescope on the ground can't see very, very faint objects because of this background light. And it also makes images wobble. You know, that's why stars twinkle, is because of turbulence in the atmosphere. 
So by getting rid of the atmosphere altogether, Hubble can see stars absolutely still and is better at distinguishing between objects that are very small and very close together. So it has better resolution, it can see more finely, and it has better sensitivity. It can see things that are fainter than a telescope on the ground can see. And in a sense, Hubble may be the closest thing we have to a time machine because it can see far back into the early universe. How has it contributed to our understanding of how the universe formed? Well, as you say, it's a time machine because the light takes amount of time to get to us. So when you look at something far away, it is a certain amount of time back in the past. So the further you look, the farther into the past you can see. And the Hubble, because of its fantastic eyesight, can look a long, long, long way out and a long way back into the past. It can detect galaxies that are within about 10% of the age of the universe after the Big Bang. So these are some of the very earliest galaxies that formed. And Hubble has done a couple of particular observations, which are known as deep fields, where it'll look at the same tiny patch of sky again and again and again over the course of about 10 days, hundreds of observations, and they combine all that data together to make one very, very, very detailed image of this little patch of sky. The first one it did in 1995 has 3,000 galaxies in that one image, and some of them are the very first galaxies from the early universe. So it's the first time we've been able to see what they look like at visible wavelengths. And what has Hubble found in our own solar system? Soon after it was launched and had its optics corrected, which was one problem in its early life, there was a very famous collision of a comet with the planet Jupiter. So this comet broke up into many pieces and was on a collision course with our biggest planet. And Hubble was just there, you know, it was working beautifully in the right position and was able to get a front row seat of all of these fragments impacting onto the surface of Jupiter and the impact that it had. So that was one of its real great triumphs in its early years. Since then, it's found new moons around Pluto. It's found details of other moons around Saturn and other major planets. And generally, it's had a huge impact on the study of our own solar system, not just deep, deep space. And has Hubble led to other great scientific discoveries, Daniel? Yes, uh, numerous ones. You know, one of its key goals was to study the rate at which the universe is expanding. So it looked for variable stars that had a standard brightness in galaxies at different distances from Earth to see whether the universe has been expanding at a constant rate. And it's also helped to understand the age of the universe. And it demonstrated that most galaxies out there have a supermassive black hole at their heart. We can't see black holes, but it's been able to look at the way things move around the hearts of galaxies and show that virtually every one we've looked at has a supermassive black hole at its center. So that's something we didn't know before until Hubble went up. Fascinating. And after 25 years, Hubble is still collecting data, but it's not going to last forever. Why not, Daniel? Well, like any mechanical object, it suffers from wear and tear and things break down. The reason Hubble's managed to last such a long time and be so productive is that it was designed to be serviced. So the space shuttle, while it was still operating, visited five times and repaired the instruments or replaced them, repaired batteries and recorders, 
and generally upgraded it every few years. And so now it's much more capable than it was when it was launched because it's had much more up-to-date instruments. So, you know, it had a renewed life every time they did a servicing mission, but the shuttle fleet is now retired, and so we don't have a way to go up and service it again. And what will become of Hubble once it no longer functions? At the moment, it's working perfectly well, but there are various ways it could fail. You know, the instruments could stop working so that it can't see anymore. It has several instruments, so as long as it's got one or two working, it's still worth using as a telescope. But gyroscopes are the other thing that tend to fail, and they're needed to hold it steady and point it at whatever you want to observe. One has failed. It's got five left. It needs three to work normally. They can still do some observations with two or even one, but that's really, really narrowing down what it's able to do. So once it's got down to very few gyroscopes, then it's really not going to work anymore, and it'll just float through space for a while until something's done about it. NASA expects it to last at least till about 2020. They would really like it if it could overlap with its successor, which is going to be launched in 2018. So they're really quite confident that it'll last till then at least, but it might last another five years after that. All right, so let's talk now about the James Webb Space Telescope that's in the works. What sets it apart from Hubble and the other space telescopes that specialize in different wavelengths of light? Well, one thing that sets it apart is the size of its mirror. So its mirror is going to be 6.5 meters across, so two and a half times as large as Hubble's. So it's going to be able to see further into the past with more detail and just give a whole new level of sensitivity and resolution. So astronomers are very excited about what they're going to be able to discover with it. It's also going to be far away from Earth to avoid some of the stray light and other effects around the Earth, it's going to be positioned a long, long way away, 1.5 million kilometers. So it's going to see space uninterrupted by anything like that. And it also looks at a slightly different range of wavelengths from Hubble. So instead of focusing on the visible and a little bit either side, it's going to range from orange or red light through to mid-infrared. So it's a slightly different range of wavelengths. But those were picked for a reason, because they're the best wavelengths to look at objects from the very, very early universe. So that's one of the main things that the James Webb Telescope is going to be looking at. Daniel, NASA's been building the James Webb Telescope for quite a while, and it's quite an amazing thing to look at. Just give me a sense of the enormity of this project. Yeah, well, it is an incredibly complicated thing, and one of the people working on it described it as the most complicated scientific machine that's ever been built. For a start, you've got to make this enormous mirror, which is too big to fit into a spacecraft fairing. The sides of it have to fold back like on a folding table and then reassemble themselves in space once it is away from the Earth. So this enormous mirror that has to be so precisely aligned to something like one ten thousandth of the width of a human hair, that's the accuracy that they have to get in the shape of the mirror, has to all be done automatically once it gets out in space. The mirror segments, each one is about 1.3 meters across, and there are 18 of them, so they have to be all aligned perfectly. 
then you have to have the mirror that focuses that light back onto the instruments. And then there are a range of instruments that have to all work and be cooled to the right temperature. And it's just very, very complicated. And so NASA and contractors and other agencies have been working on it for more than 20 years now. And they've still got a few years to go. So they're very busy and keeping their fingers crossed that it's all going to go according to plan. And are there other bigger and better telescopes in the works? We all want to look for exoplanets, but we kind of look for exoplanets indirectly right now. Are there telescopes that could one day directly observe exoplanets? Yes. Well, there is another telescope that is under development at the moment, but it wouldn't launch until some years after James Webb, which is called the Wide Field Infrared Survey Telescope. So WFIRST is its acronym. And that's smaller than James Webb, but it will have something called a coronagraph, which is essentially a mask to block out the light from a distant star so that you can see the exoplanets around it. So it's just screening that very bright starlight so that you can see the much fainter exoplanets without being dazzled by the star. And that's probably going to be launched, you know, in the 2020s. And it might allow us to directly get the light from exoplanets. So you can, you know, start to discern what the atmosphere of the exoplanets is like, you know, whether there are signs of life. But it won't be able to see Earth-like ones. It'll be able to see larger ones than Earth. To get something that's genuinely Earth-like is going to need an even bigger telescope than James Webb. Interesting. But there's the possibility that if there was an Earth-like planet, it could be within 50 or 100 light years of Earth? Yes, certainly. One instrument that's being talked about at the moment is called the High Definition Space Telescope. So this would have another step on in terms of mirror size. So they're talking about a 10 or 12 meter mirror. But that sort of instrument would be able to get an image of an Earth-sized planet around a star that's not too distant from us. You know, that's one of the challenges that they have to overcome first is finding out what are the closest exoplanets that might be like an Earth. So we've got other missions that are looking out for possible candidates that a very, very big telescope would then be able to try and image directly. And are we prepared for what we might see if we build even better telescopes down the road, I wonder? Well, you know, you could never tell what you're going to see. Whenever you build a bigger telescope, you always find things you're not expecting. But, you know, nothing pleases uh, scientists more than finding things they weren't expecting because that makes their lives much more interesting. And that's been one of the joys of Hubble. It's discovered things and elucidated things that weren't even dreamt of when it was built. Exoplanets weren't even on the cards when... Hubble was built, but it's adaptable enough that it's been able to shed a lot of light on them once it got up there. And if we can't service Hubble because we don't have the space shuttle, how can we service these future telescopes or do they have some other thing built in to keep them going? They're designed not to be serviceable. So we have to get them right first time. And that's why so much development and so much testing is going into telescopes such as James Webb. James Webb is going to be one and a half million kilometers away. So we don't have any spacecraft at the moment that could go out and service it. So you know, you have to get it right the first time. Thanks for speaking with me, Daniel. Oh, it's a pleasure. 
Daniel Cleary writes about the 25th anniversary of the Hubble Space Telescope this week in science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at triplas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other places on the web or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Suzanne Bard. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.